0: Okay, John chapter 2. And I want to remind all the kids that uh, you should have an outline like this when you came in the door. Announcements on one side, outline on the other. If you young people will make an attempt to fill this out and then come show it to me and show me that you tried, I will give you one of my famous hugs. Okay? Everybody gets a hug from me. Okay, John chapter 2. We're going to the story that we're going to look at this morning is in verses 1 through 11, but uh, I want to do something different. I want to start with verse 11. I want to start with the end. Let's see what this says at the end here. What Jesus? It says in verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which He revealed His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. So this is the first of the signs that he did that reveal his glory. So we're going to look at seven signs. Uh, The first half of the Gospel of John has seven miracles recorded that uh, that signify something some aspect of Jesus, his godly character. And so we're going to look at this first one here, The Wedding at Cana. It's not an unusual story. Most of us are familiar with it. We've, we've heard it and read it. But I want us to dissect it today. I want us to look a little deeper and uh, especially to look for some prophetic messages that might be hidden in here that in casual reading would go right over our heads. I want us to, uh, to explore this. A sign, it points to something. It signifies something greater than the sign itself. It communicates to us. So in this story, I want us to start out with reading verses 1, 2, and 3. And what I want to do here, I want to share four aspects of the story or four key points of the story that we're going to look at. And the first one is in the first three verses. It says, on the third day a wedding took place at Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and His disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to Him they have no more wine. Don't have any more wine. We've run out. Now, weddings, I, I went back and I checked my records because I knew what I was going to be talking about. I checked my records to see how many weddings that I have officiated at in my ministry lifetime. And I was, I was surprised. I did, I did one here about a month ago, and that made number 316 wedding that I've, that I've uh, performed. I've done very small weddings with just a handful of people. Uh, we've done weddings at the end of a service when everybody was still here. Uh, we've, uh, and I've done those big formal weddings at intimidating places uh, with, with lots of people, a lot more people than we could sit in this place. So I've seen all sides of it, the simple and the elaborate. And uh, one thing I do know, everybody wants their wedding to be a little bit above normal. Normal. You know, weddings are big occasions. It's a big deal. Have a wedding. I mean, people spend a lot of money on a wedding. Now, I, I, I did some research because I, I wanted to know what's the average cost of a wedding. And I, I found this, this figure, and I found it online, so it's got to be true. <laughs> the average wedding in 2017 was $33,391. Now that includes the honeymoon, that includes the rings, that includes everything you spend for the reception and, and all of that. $33,000! That's average in America. I, th- I think maybe we are putting too much emphasis on the wedding and not enough emphasis on the marriage. Is that a possibility? <clears throat> I don't know the ratio difference between what people invest in the first wedding and what they spend in the second wedding or the third wedding. Okay, so here's the first blank if you want to write it down. It's the wedding. The, the first aspect of our story is the wedding itself. Weddings tend to be formal occasions. Everybody wants to get dressed up as best as possible. We can't afford the tuxes, so we go rent them because we're only going to wear them one time. The bride typically has got to buy that dress. And it's not just some common ordinary dress typically in a wedding. I mean, this thing is fancy. Somebody has invested a lot in this dress. And as the officiator at a wedding, it's my job to kind of keep all the parts working together because I'm the guy with experience. People getting married, they don't have any experience with weddings. They could read a book or read Dear Abby or something uh, to get an idea of how should a wedding go. But I've got to make all these parts fit together. When, do the, when does the ring bearer come in? You know, all these parts have to work together. Where, where do the X's sit at a wedding? You know, I've got, to, I've got to put all these pieces together and make it as comfortable as I can for the bride and groom. I represent them. But everybody wants it perfect. And in a fallen world it's hard to get perfect. Right? Because I know I'm not perfect. So anytime I do a wedding, I get nervous. I'm afraid I'll mess up just a little bit. And all it takes for me is a little bit messed up, and the whole thing's messed up. The reason weddings are such a big deal is because it's a covenant occasion. It's when a man and a woman make promises to each other in front of their friends and family, a public occasion, making vows to each other that actually, to tell you the truth, I want to hold them to it. I want to help them through the tough times. Now our wedding occasions take about half a day. You come to the wedding ceremony, And then everybody goes to the reception, and there there's some more rituals that we do, a little more casual, and and one of the things everybody does at the reception is we eat good. You You can wrap up half a day in a wedding. But these weddings would take days. I mean people traveled in, family traveled in from miles around when they had to walk to get there. And they would be there for days celebrating the wedding. It talks here about the third day of the wedding. A problem arose. Everything had gone smooth so far. Nobody wants a glitch, but there's a problem, a major problem. The guests of the wedding are here to eat and enjoy themselves, and they ran out of wine. That's an important part of the wedding celebration, the wine. And they ran out. Somebody messed up. Were they, were they too poor and they didn't have enough money for everybody that came? Did they, did too many people come? Did somebody just flat out mismanage? One of those things happened. And there were people there at the wedding feast... And they ran out of wine. And guess who noticed it? Mary. Mary. Mother Mary. We learned something about Mary here. She's a fixer. She's always got her minds going on how everything's working. She's always processing things. Always got always she kind of like my wife i always spotting things that, aren't, that ought to be done, that haven't been done yet. Why haven't they been done? And she comes to Jesus, and she said, they've run out of wine. They're all out. We've run out. Somebody messed up. It's going to be a bad reception. It's not going to be what everybody expected. Could it be there's a prophetic message in that statement? They've run out of wine. What does wine represent in the Bible? Let me give you two scriptures. The first one is Psalm 104, verse 15. Wine that gladdens human hearts. And the other one, Judges 9, 13 from a a parable. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans to hold sway over the trees? Wine cheers both gods and humans. I think we're getting a pattern here of what wine represents in the Bible. Wine represents joy, represents excitement, represents celebration, represents a party, represents something full of joy. That's what wine represents. And Mary goes to Jesus and said, they've run out of wine. They've just run out of it. Could it be that the reason this story is being told the way it's being told is because it's talking about Israel having run out of wine that creates joy and they don't have any good news to give to anybody else. They have just become settled in their ritual, settled into their routine, settled into their way of doing it, and there's no joy. And nobody is interested in our God if our faith is boring. People are only going to be interested in our God if they see some joy in it, some excitement in it. I want to stay full of life. Could it be that you've run out of wine? That you don't have anything to pass on to anyone else? That your life is so full of stress, so full of pressure, so full of guilt and shame that you can't give this new wine to anybody else. The wine's run out. It's a problem. Let's go to the second part of the story, which is found in verses 4 and 5 as the story unfolds. Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. The second part of the story is the whatever. Write that down in your blank. blank, The the whatever. Jesus appeared to push back a little bit. Mary just told him they've run out of wine. I mean she's just reporting the problem. But she doesn't report it to anybody else. She reports it to Jesus. And Jesus says, woman, which by the way is not an insult to call your mother woman. That was was common. It's used several times in the Bible. So he says to her, woman what's that got to do with us? The The literal translation of Jesus' reply is what this you and me? What's this got to do with us? We're guests at the wedding. It's not our problem, it's their problem. So he seems to push back. Notice Mary just ignores him. (laughs) And she turns to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) It's as if she knows something about Jesus. Now this is the first miracle that he's done. This is number one. So she's never seen him do a miracle before. But she somehow senses something in his character, something that she has seen over the years before the Holy Spirit came upon him, before his ministry began. She's seen something in him. So she tells the servants, do do whatever he says. Whatever. She doesn't have a clue what he's going to say, but she knows he's going to say something. Apparently, Jesus was involved in fixing problems. He was a solution man even before the anointing came upon him. And she saw that. There's a problem. Somebody's going to be embarrassed. Somebody has messed up and it's going to wreck the reception. People are going to get frustrated. They're going to walk out the door. They'll leave with a bad memory instead of a good one. That's not what we want. Whatever he tells you, the whatever factor. Because, you know, people like us, we tend to use our logic. We rationalize things and we do logical things that are going to get us a good result in the end. Mary just says whatever he tells you. Because Jesus is just beginning to tell people crazy things to do. If You do this crazy thing, something great's going to happen. For example, Peter was out and about and he heard people complaining about Jesus. You and your disciples don't pay taxes. And Peter said, well, of course we do. And then he went into Jesus and he said, uh, Jesus, we do pay taxes, don't we? And Jesus said, I'll tell you what, Peter, I'll tell you what. You go fishing. The first fish you catch, pull it up, look in its mouth, and you'll find a coin in there. Go pay taxes for you and I. So he did it. I don't know if I would. I mean, I'm not a fisherman, but I'm smart enough to know you're not going to catch a fish with a coin in this mouth. Peter was a professional fisherman. I wonder how many coins he'd found in those fish's mouths. And Jesus tells him to go fish and he's going to find a coin. Right. That's the whatever factor. What does Peter do? He does exactly what he's told. Go catch his, catches a fish and there's the coin. He goes, pays the taxes. Problem solved. Jesus is a problem solver. I said he's a problem solver. He can solve your problems too. Another time ten lepers came to him. Leprosy is a health problem. It was considered highly contagious. So every leper was required in the Old Testament was required. They had to call out unclean wherever they went. If If they went to church someplace they had to announce publicly to everybody unclean coming. Here comes unclean, and wreck your self-esteem. But all ten of them came to Him because they, they clustered together. They found camaraderie in their pain, and they came to Jesus. And they said, would you cleanse us? The Bible said if anybody becomes clean of leprosy, they have to go show themselves to the priest, and the priest has to announce that they're clean. Then they're, they're okay. They're not okay until they've been announced clean by the priest." So Jesus just looks at these ten men covered in leprosy and he said, go show yourself to the priest. Now you know what the priest is going to tell them? They're covered with leprosy. That's not really good advice. Go show yourself to the priest. But they turned and they went to the priest to show themselves. Somewhere along the journey we don't know where, somewhere along there they looked down and they noticed the leprosy was gone and they got excited, and they began praising God, and they scattered to go home and show themselves to their family. But this one came back to thank Jesus. Just one out of ten came back to thank Jesus. Just one. How did that miracle happen? They obeyed. They did the whatever he told them to do. did it make sense, yes. but they did it. Another time Peter was on the, the ship with the other disciples and they were out there and there was a storm. And you know what storm does? the storm does to water. And they looked up and they saw this figure walking to them on the water. And then as he got closer they realized it was Jesus walking on the water. People can't walk on water. A human body is heavier than the water and it's going to sink so Peter saw that and he said, Jesus, if that's really you invite me to come to you on the water. And so Jesus said, come. I really don't think he expected that. Come. So he got down out of the boat and the Bible says he began to walk on the water to go to Jesus until he saw the waves and that scared him. And when we get scared we lose our faith real quick and he began to sink. And he said, Lord, save me. One of the shortest prayers in the Bible. Jesus reached right out, took him by the hand and lifted him up. Peter walked on the water. Before you get down on him because he didn't have enough faith, how long, how many steps have you taken on the water? (laughs) Jesus is the whatsoever factor. Whatever he says, do it. And then there's the old classic story you've heard me tell many times of the disciples who were professional fishermen fishing all night long hadn't caught anything and Jesus said drop your nets on the other side and you'll catch some right tell that to a fisherman he knows better there ain't no way but it's the whatever he tells you to do do it they dropped their nets on the other side pulled, come up with so many fish they had to call their partners in nets were breaking It's the whatever factor. <clears throat> when I was in the Christian training center we had a, uh, an instructor by the name of Guy Walsh. He was an old country preacher that uh, traveled around Indiana, southern Ohio, Kentucky, and he would set up, set up tent meetings. He was an evangelist. And he would preach the word and souls would get saved. He'd go in and set up a tent in a vacant lot someplace, put down sawdust on the, on the ground, and people would come in to hear him preach. And he was kind of a, a funny guy. He was not someone you'd expect to teach at a Bible college. I mean, he played, uh, he, he, was, he used a lot of old country slang, and he played a guitar that was always out of tune. I think he intentionally set it out of tune just to get us to smile. But he was a great preacher. He did crazy, unusual things to get our attention. He told a story that one time he went to southern Indiana and he set up up his tent in this community and uh, put a sign up out front telling everybody what the topic was going to be and nobody would come. So he did some research and found out it was a Catholic community and nobody would come because he was a Protestant (coughs) evangelist. So he changed the lettering on the sign out front of his tent that said following the will of Mary. And that night the tent was packed out with Catholics who wanted to know what the will of Mary was and he preached from this text. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. And then he preached the gospel. (laughs) What a strategy. Sometimes we got to be smarter than the world. That's the whatever. Here's the third part of the story. It's the water jars. We get this from verses 6 and 7. Nearby stood six stone notice what they're made out of, stone water jars. The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Here's the whatsoever in this case. It's the water jars. Six, six stone water jars. They would hold somewhere between 20 to 30 gallons. Let's round it out say 25 gallons. That, that's a pretty big stone jar. I mean, I'm going to grunt to lift this, just this stone jar. Six of them. You know what six represents in the Bible? It's the number of man. Six, six, six. God created everything on six days, but the work wasn't completed till he rested on the seventh. That makes the one week seven days. Requires a Sabbath to be complete. Here there's not seven water jars, there's six water jars. The number of man's, the number of works, man's efforts. And they were the kind of jars used for ceremonial washing. Now this wasn't to take a bath. This was ceremonial washing. The King James Version says, for the purifying of the Jews... In the Old Testament, God had required that when they would come into a public occasion, when people came together, they were to ceremonially cleanse themselves, everybody that came in. So they were ceremonially clean, and God could come into the room with them. And they would take some water, and they would wash their cheeks, and wash their hands, wash their elbows, a couple key places, symbolic of cleansing, and they were sitting there empty. Could this be prophetic? Could God be trying to speak to us about six empty water jars used for purifying yourself? Nobody could be purified in a setting like that. They're sitting there empty. Now 25 gallons. Let's try to get our minds around this. There's six of them Six times 25 is 150 gallons. Picture three 55-gallon drums. If you don't know what a 55-gallon drum is, that's those burn barrels that people put out back to burn their trash in. That's a 55-gallon barrel. That's approximately three of those things. That's a lot of water. They've run out of wine. People are here to party. And Jesus said, fill them up with water. So they filled them up with water. To the brim. The servants did this. These, these might be the people that have to carry those jugs around. But they fill them to the brim. I wonder what would have happened had they only filled them halfway up. Did the servants have something to do with the measurement of the blessing that came their way? So they filled these things up to the top 150 gallons now everybody's going to have something to drink and because I have a problem with sugar i got to watch the sugar intake because it all goes to pounds on me so i got to be careful what I eat that turns to sugar. So I can't drink lemonade, so usually when I'm eating someplace I I order water with a little bit of lemon to give it a little bit of flavor because I do not like water. Water is bland. I mean there's no flavor to water. I don't like water. I have to have it. And water will hydrate everybody at the wedding feast. But it's it's just kind of like drinking decaf. What's the purpose? (laughs) No water jars. <laughs> filled up with water. But we can't, we can't stop the story there. we got to go on to the last part. Uh, which is verses 8, 9, and 10. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water Jesus, or not Jesus but the bridegroom, you've saved the best till now. you saved the best till last. That's not the way people do it. That's not the way it's done around here. But Jesus is always doing things the way it's never been done before. He not only made wine, 150 gallons of it, but He made the best wine said by people who drink wine all the time you made the best wine. I read a commentator, Oliver B. Green uh, I, I have his commentary, he's an old southern Baptist preacher uh, and I like the way he, he pulls other scriptures out and ties it in so I have his commentary and I, I read that preparing for this he spent two full pages in his commentary trying to convince us that Jesus didn't make wine, he made grape juice. Doesn't fit with the story here. Doesn't fit with it. I mean they had already been drinking wine and they said, whoa, this is the best wine yet. Now don't anybody go out and tell somebody that Pastor Deal says we should all be drinking real wine. I'm not saying that. But I do think it's a little bit foolish for us to try to minimize what the Bible is saying. This was a real miracle. Jesus was able to transform 150 gallons of regular H2O into wine that tasted better than anything they had before. So that everybody could party and celebrate and be filled with joy because that's what wine represents. There's this There's a spiritual meaning here. We need to be looking at the spiritual meaning. So when did the transformation take place? I mean think about the elements here. Jesus told the servants pour water into these pots and then, and we assume it's pretty quickly after that, he said take some of that out of the water pot and take it to the head guy so i took it to the head guy and he tasted it and was shocked at how good it was and you you did what other people don't do this is the best when did that miracle happen did it happen as the water went into the pot did it happen as they drew it out of the pot Did it happen as the servants were carrying it over to the head guy or did it happen when the head guy put it up to his lips to taste it? When did it happen? You don't know any more than I do. Does it matter when it happened? What matters is that it happened. And the problem was solved. Jesus is a problem solver. Only the servants knew. That it was really water they pulled out of that jar. They're the the ones who put the water in. Only them. Nobody else knew. Of course the disciples knew or they wouldn't have been able to write the story down for us to recall it. So the servants did talk about it. One thing we do know about the miracle is it took place when the servants did whatever he asked them to do. They poured water into these jars and then they dipped out of it, served it to the head guy and then they served it to everybody and everybody there was able to drink the wine. Jesus didn't use any magic words. He didn't lay hands on the pots. He just told the servants what to do and the miracle was released as the servants obeyed. Are you getting this message? Yeah. The miracles happen as the servants obey. It's as we do the whatever He tells us to do. Whether it has to do with some service, some actions, some giving, some words that we give to somebody. As we obey a miracle takes place. This We are key factors in any miracle that happens. You and I, we're key factors. In other words if we don't really believe this is a story relevant for today there'll be no more miracles. It's only when God's people see it as a story that we can learn from and apply to our life that we begin doing the whatever actions that bring about the miracles and solve problems. So six water pots full of water We only read about the one that was drawn out and taken to the head guy. But my assumption is the whole pot was filled with wine. All six pots were filled with wine. Aged wine. Mature wine. I learned out of that that I believe God can speed up the maturity process in people like you and I. I've known people who because of their upbringing should have been very normal people, but when they had some some encounters with God, some reversals and they went through some crises, they got real smart. It's like wisdom just matured boiled up inside of them and had wisdom way beyond their age. I've known other people that never seemed to get that wisdom. But he can mature us rapidly. And notice this. Credit went to the bridegroom. The head guy who tasted it and said this is the best said that to the bridegroom. He was praising the bridegroom. So no matter what miracle God does through you, be sure not to take the credit. Be sure to give the credit to the groom the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. This is a countercultural thing. People don't do it this way. You don't bring out the best wine last, you bring that out first. But Jesus did it backwards. I wonder what other things, if we would think about it, Jesus does backwards. Or should I say we do backwards? Because Jesus is doing it God's way. But because we're fallen, we tend to do things backwards. So I got one final word for us. If you, if you take notes, write this down. The best wine is yet to come. The best wine is yet to come. God is doing a work of transformation, you see, in our lives in my life, in yours. He's not done transforming me. I hope this isn't as good as it gets. I hope God's got something better for me than what I have right now. I hope God has something better for you than what we see right here. I hope God's got a plan for your life. And aging and maturity speeds up in you so you can be everything God wants you to be. Because when it comes to this new wine that we have through the Spirit of God, the best is yet to come. Our church has not tasted the best yet. You, as in, you and I as individuals, we have not tasted the best yet. We're on our way. Getting older does not make us weaker. Getting older gives us more experience. And with experience comes wisdom. And with wisdom with God, that comes power. Influential power that we have in our spiritual lives. So let's get back to our, our key thing. A sign. This is the first of the signs to reveal His glory. To reveal something about Jesus. What do we learn about Jesus from the story? That He's a problem solver. He covers our failures. Anybody here ever failed before? Let's see. A couple of you don't vote on anything. We've all failed at something. Nobody likes to fail. The good news is Jesus covers our failure. So the next time you look at failure straight in the face, remember Jesus covers our failures. You just got to give it to Him and do whatever He tells you to do. And as you do whatever He tells you to do, and I do whatever He tells me to do, and the rest of us all do whatever He tells us to do, the church rises up and great things happen in the body of Christ. Amen. Amen? Let's stand together. I'm looking forward to see the outlines the kids have put together. I want, to, I want to see their W words on there, okay? And I want to pray for people right now. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I know some of you would be so ashamed to do that. But, the, but I want to pray for people in our church who have or are going through a failure, some kind of a failure. Maybe it's with finances. Maybe it's with relationships. I don't know, but there's some kind of a failure because we believe that Jesus covers our failures. If we believe that, then let's take it to Him. Heavenly Father, I pray right now for people in this room who need their failure covered. Lord, they've messed up somewhere along the way and the wine's gone. The wine's empty. And Father, I pray that you would restore the joy of their salvation. Put that joy down inside. Father, help us to walk with such a victory in our step. Help us to carry ourselves with with such a winning attitude because we know you are going through this life with us. You are helping us through the tough times. Help us to experience you covering our failure. Forgive us for our mistakes. Empower us for the future and help us to be everything you want us to be We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Go with God. We've got prayer partners up to the front. Feel free to bring your request to them. Go with God. He loves you.